Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we get a rundown on what's going on, or not going on as the case might be, in Parliament with Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star. Hate crime is on the rise. According to Michael Kempa from uh, University of Ottawa, he'll join us to talk about the incident at University of Waterloo yesterday. A look into the Raptors with our good friend Jordan Armanis with free agency coming up. And also, uh, with smoky conditions continuing in the forecast, we're going to find a, a better way to measure smoke. Apparently, there is one, but we're not using it in Ontario. Wonder why. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I, we know that the Parliament uh, Hill is, is closed. Lights are down there right now. They're off on their summer vacay. Uh, but still lots going on at the federal government scene. And uh, to give us a rundown on what's happening, why it's happening, or why it's not happening, as the case might be. Uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you with us. Uh, happy Almost Canada Day. Yes, Bill. Uh, despite the smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, before, well, we start, before we start, doesn't that layer of smoke reminds you of newsrooms back in the 70s and 80s when smoking was allowed. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, when, when smoking was allowed indoors, well, smoking was allowed, period. And I'm, I'm a non-smoker. I have never touched the stuff. I and mean, you go into some of these environments, and uh, and newsrooms especially, because there used to be a lot of reporters back in those days. Boy, how things have changed. There's no smoke and uh, hardly any reporters left these days. That's right. <laughs> that was then. This is now. Uh, I want to I get into some of the legislation. Uh, that very, very contentious uh, bill that the Liberals have passed about, and, and Google and, and, and Facebook have responded to that. But let's, let's uh, come back to that in a couple of seconds. Uh, what I want to talk about here is uh, when people start to uh, evaluate politicians, you'd like to think that uh, a good deal of that assessment is going to be based on their policy, uh, you know, what they're all about, what they stand for. But looks matter. I mean, you know, you've been doing this for a long, long time. Uh, and and p- people are impacted by the way people look. And and I know that one of the elements that, that really bothered the federal conservative party these days is uh, they they like Pierre Polyev. A lot of them do anyway. Uh, but the public just doesn't seem to warm up to this guy for some reason. Uh, so it looks as if uh, there, there's a, a makeover in progress here. I don't know if you've noticed the last couple of times that he's uh, been in front of the microphones. Uh, he's ditched the glasses. Uh, he's he's not wearing the shirt and tie anymore. Uh, this is this is the what they think is the new and improved Pierre Polyev. Are you surprised by this? Not in the least. And I've seen makeovers before. I I you know uh, David Peterson was a case in point when he was in opposition uh, in Queens Park as liberal uh, leader. He was a dweeb. No no question about it. He was uh, wear corduroy uh, suits and he. Just didn't fit the bill. He went away to charm school, came back looking <laughs> entirely different. And one thing led to another, and he was the he was the premier before we knew it. But so looks matter. I mean, as much as I hate to say that, you know, it, it does. Well, and Peterson's classic example, and when I saw Polyev on TV uh, yesterday with this new look, Peterson was the first guy I thought about because I remember that transition. He was he was elected. He was an MPP from London, Ontario, of course. Some people in, at CFPL know all about that. Uh, but the, during this transition, and it seemed to happen, I think it was over a summer break, uh, apparently, guys, I talked to one of the people in the party that was involved in, in this. They they basically said, look, you got to lose some weight, which I guess he did. Uh, they ditched the glasses. He had some black horn rim glasses, and you know you're going to get used to contacts. Uh, and it was a new and improved person. I mean, and as you say, eventually he became premier. Uh, I don't know if that's going to work for Polly or not, but it, uh, uh, what's going on now seems to be uh, indicating that look at you know there's something going on here because they I, I know you've talked to a number of people that don't necessarily want to go on the record here, but a lot of people that are, are behind the curtain there with the conservatives are thinking you know. We, public opinion polls tell us we should be miles ahead of the of the liberals in in the polls, and they sort of are. But Canadians just don't seem to like him, uh, and that can be a deciding factor in an election, candidate. Well, oh, absolutely. Uh, he's a drag on the party. There's no question about that. I mean, they are. You know, they brought in all kinds of money. They out outpace the other parties in in, in cash, and uh, and I think he, their support's growing, but he is the problem. And they've got to tackle that. I mean, they can't go through another 
leader and like they've been, you know, changing leaders like uh, like underwear here. But he he's they've got to do something with him. And that's to change his image. And I'll tell you, that's not going to be an easy job. Well, and, and again, I know I'm not attacking Paulie. I don't know the guy. I only talked to him two or three times when he's been a guest on the show. And, I, you know, that, and it's policy. But what I'm talking about is the public perception. And that matters to people. And and even if they, because I'm, I'm assuming most Canadians don't know him either. But, you know, the first impressions and all this sort of thing. And and you've got to have uh, that that good feeling about somebody before you're actually going to cozy up to them and say, yeah, I, I can support that individual. And I'm not suggesting it's, you know, this is like, you know, Barbie and Ken, you have to be, you know, perfect 10 for anybody to, to even consider you as, as a prime minister or a premier, whatever the case might be. But we've seen that happen more and more. They tried to do it sort of with Aaron O'Toole in the last election, didn't they? You know, he, he ditched the jacket and he was wearing the, the black T-shirt, you know, the, the you know, the, the pecs showing and and the, the, the forearms and everything like that. Just to kind of prove that, hey, I'm, 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 I'm just one of you guys. I'm an everyday person, not not some person who's just been up, you know, hunkering down on Parliament Hill for the last little while. It's it's an important part of this. And it's fascinating to see that happen. Remember, oh. I, was, I think you and I were talking about six, eight months ago, where Paulie basically said, "I'm not talking to the media anymore." You know, you, I don't trust them. They're, they're. Well, he came on with a rather long and lengthy discussion about why nobody should trust the media, and about a week later, he's in front of the microphones again because I'm, I'm sure somebody back there said, "Pierre, Pierre, you know, chill. Let's let's just let's get this straight here. You you've got to have a PR department, don't you?" Well, you do, and the trouble here with uh, Mr. Paulie is that. He's, you know, he's been, uh, you know, the, their pit bull for so long and comes across as this, you know, uh, angry man, uh, you know, humorless guy. And those glasses uh, certainly didn't help. He doesn't come across as warm and fuzzy at all. And, and people are people want more than just, you know, rhetoric and and ranting. And that's and that's what his problem is right now, because they just see him as just this guy that's angry and and they don't particularly like the looks of him when he because of that. And I think part, you know, it's going to be tough to, for him to try and uh, show to Canadians that he's just one of the guys. He's just one of them. And the guy's never worked in his life. He, I think he had a, a job for oh, a summer as a in a grocery store. And and that's all, all with respect for the people working grocery, but he was a part-time whatever. And he's been in politics his entire life. I think his problem is identifying with people, and that comes across. Well, and it's going to be fascinating to see just how this uh, this carries on. And uh, uh, well, I guess the next big step for these guys and for for Polyev, for the Prime Minister, and for Jagmeet Singh and 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 everyone else is is the Calgary Stampede. I mean, that's the that's the real first show, isn't it? The summer barbecue circuit. They all want to pop up there, and they've all got the Stetsons and the blue jeans on, uh, and each trying to you know out ordinary man the other guy. Uh, so it, I, I don't know if that's going to be part of the 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 transformation that's going to go on here, but it's, it's fascinating to watch. And it's part of politics that we don't talk a whole lot about, uh, but it's an important part. If you want to win, uh, you've got to have that, that, that angle. You've got to have that public support and at least acceptance. Anyway, they don't have to love you, but they, they, you don't want them, you know, saying, I, I just don't feel comfortable. And, and that's part of the situation I found with politics. Uh, people don't like to be angry all the time. And if somebody's just, it's negative, 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 eventually that turns people off. A lot of them anyway. And I mean, I mean that maybe is what I'd, it's at play here with Polly of these days. It's, it's image and, and the way you, you know, image, the way you look, it's the way you present yourself is just as important as the policies you have, because you've got to, you've got to come across as somebody that. You, you you know, maybe your next door neighbor, somebody you'd like to meet or just, you know, hang out with or just have a beer with or whatever. But he just doesn't have that quality. I'm not saying he won't be able to get it. Don't I mean, like we said earlier, about Peterson, uh, but it's going to be difficult for him. There's no question about that. Well, and, and just as you were talking, they're getting they suggested Bob Ray is another who went through that transformation too. ditched the glasses, got the contacts on and. 
but Ray was a different individual altogether. He always has been kind of a person, people person. But it, it's going to be fascinating to see just how this is going to work out in in the next little while. Uh, let me pivot over. I got a few minutes left. I want to talk about uh, what's going on right now uh, with uh, the 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 bill that was just passed through the, the well the Senate. I guess it was the one that finally ratified this. Uh, but you know, Facebook, Google, everybody else is basically crapping all over Canada right now and saying we're going to pull all of our news sources out of here. Right now, it's just a news story that hasn't really impacted too many people yet. But they say that when the bill goes into effect, which we're told is probably going to be early next year, uh, it's going to be a rude awakening for an awful lot of, of, of people that want to log on to these, uh, these platforms. And they're going to want to blame somebody, aren't they? Well, I think there's a little blame to go around here. It, this, they're, they're handling it. The government, federal government's handling it. This is further proof that the, some of the scariest words in the English language are that I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. And, and that's what's happened here. This bill, I think, has been bungled by the minister. And, and, but also, we've got two big corporations who don't figure they have to abide by anything. They're bigger than, they're bigger than governments. They're bigger than life itself. And, you know, to the Facebook and, and Google, who have made money off, off uh, newsrooms and media across the country, and, and now they're being asked to pay for it. And, oh, no, we can't do that. That's just, you know, that's terrible. Well, it isn't, it, you know, I don't know what kind, I've seen what they've agreed to, but maybe some more negotiations should have gone on. But it's, it seems to be the whole thing was just a mess. And I don't know if it can be salvaged. Well, uh, we're told that the whole world is watching. I mean, Australia had this run in, of course, with these uh, these platforms a while ago, and they stuck to their guns, essentially. Uh, but the U.S., we're told, and, and the U.K. are both looking at Canada right now and, and saying if they can survive this. I mean, this is really a stare down, isn't it? Who's going to blink first? Uh, but if, if if the government eventually wins or if there's some compromise that's palpable to everybody, uh, you're going to see those other countries follow suit as well because they, they know there's an injustice here. And and frankly, I think Google knows it too, and so does Facebook, but they just don't seem to want to do anything about it. Well, no, they don't They don't want to pay their fair share. Uh, I, I think that at this point, Bill, the government can't blink because if it blinks on this, you know, corporations – will be expecting all kinds of, uh, you know, issues where the government's involved for the government to blink again. They just can't. That, I mean, it's, it's sorry, uh, position that has come to this, but they can't, they just can't back off, backpedal, whatever you want to say at this point. It's it's going to be a, a staring contest and we'll see, we'll see who wins it. But I, I'm hoping that, uh, the Google at uh, Google and Facebook, you know, come to their senses and agree to some some position anyway, because, I mean, you know, Bill, and that your audience knows that the media is is uh, in rough shape. No question about it. Newspapers, radio, television are in rough shape and they need extra income. They lost tons of money because advertising went to the big boys like Facebook and Google, and they just don't have the income they do, and they're asking for a piece of the pie. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's too much to ask for that piece, quite frankly. Well, yeah, and and you know the argument is I guess say we don't want to start you know parsing the whole bill of it, but is uh, they're making tons of money right now off the, uh, the the work that's being done by print media, broadcast media, things of that nature. I mean, they just say, here, hit this button, and and they're selling it, you know, as opposed to the, you know, company ABC uh, advertising with the Toronto Star, for instance. Uh, they're just going to go on to Facebook and say, I'll just add, you know, because there, there's there, that's where the money is. And and so the papers are going uh, really getting battered here. And we got another example of that this week. I mean, you've heard about the quote-unquote merger uh, that's being suggested right now, and and you know there's going to be well, what they call efficiencies. A lot more people in journalism are going to start losing their jobs. Yeah, efficiency. You know what, yeah, Bill, we know, both know what that means. Yeah. That means people being shown the door. Uh, I've, I'm still scratching my head over that merger or potential merger as, as how that's going to all fall up. But you just know 
that it's not going to be good for the you know the employees of either uh, you know Metroland or or Post Media or the Toronto Star. It just it's not going to augur well, and that's why I was hoping that this again uh, Facebook and uh, and Google would come to some agreement because they need the money. We need reporters. It, it's it's such an important part of democracy that we have people out there gathering the news and delivering it in, in you know, the, an unbiased way or best as they can. For a, a news-hungry population, let's face it, people want to know what's going on, or at least I hope they do. And I don't know. It's just I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of how this is all going to turn out. But again, the government can't back off. Well, they can't. And, and, you know, even if you were to go on to Google right now or Facebook and see a news story, which is usually, as you say, lifted off some newspaper or a radio station section, whatever the case might be, uh, there are no reporters for Google or Facebook, okay? They, they don't go and find the news. They simply reprint the news and the work that somebody else has put into it. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the big stories that we talk about on, on programs like this, whether it's the foreign interference uh, situation, whether it's any number of other major stories, uh, those things were all reported on by diligent reporting and and people like yourself back in the day, of course, and, and, and Stephen Chase and Bob Fife and so many others for the Globe and Mail. Uh, if we don't have that, uh, there's no information. And boy, the absence of information here is the last thing we need. Anyway, we got to scoot. Uh, it's been a busy, busy week for us. I'm glad you had some time to talk to us today. Uh, have a good weekend. Have a good Canada Day weekend. We'll talk again soon. Will do, Bill. You too. Thanks. Okay. Richard Brennan, former journalist who covered uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years, of course, for the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to uh, go back and look at uh, the story that I think shocked an awful lot of us yesterday. Uh, University of Waterloo stabbings uh, were hate motivated, according to the police investigation. Just what is going on? And and, and what motivates people to, to do these, these heinous acts? Uh, bring our next guest in to talk about this. Michael Kemp, of course, is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Michael, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for jumping on with us today. Morning, Bill. What 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 goes through people's minds? I mean, sadly, we we understand racism. We don't want it, but I mean, we know it exists, and and hate seems to be on the rise again. Uh, but there have been, uh, I, I think, a, a number of hate crimes. I would suggest the statistics indicate a large increase in the number of hate crimes in the last little while, uh, including this one, of course, that that have motivated. I, I, well, we I don't know what's got going on in this guy's head, but why the increase? What seems to be happening here? There's a couple of things going on, Bill. When we go back to the outset of the pandemic, over the three years since the outbreak of COVID-19, there's been an increase each year of over 25% in most categories of hate crime, uh, also increases in domestic violence. These are the categories of crime that explain upticks in crime rates overall. It has obviously a lot to do with societal disorganization that came through the COVID-19 pandemic and the opportunity structures that come up when you change a society through a pandemic. So just for example, if people are staying at home and working from home and whatnot, property crimes are just more difficult to commit. But where people are alone and frustrated and whatnot, domestic violence goes up. And where people are angry, they, di- they direct that anger outward. And you have a rise in hate crimes, people who are being blamed and scapegoated for uh, disorganization in society. Well, there seems to be a focus uh, on LGBTQ communities, and, and and we saw this even with the, the the you know the Bud Light thing that was going on down in the states, uh, we, and and it just you know we we understand okay there are some people that just have twisted ideas and twisted minds, but to take it to that level to it, to actually incite violence and attack people because of this that's what how does it get ramped up to that level? It has a lot to do with decline in faith or uh, adherence to science as the basis of belief in our society. There are very many more people who reject what we would call that modern approach to putting together your belief system, and they prefer much more of a morals-based or a conviction system. Simply what you believe with force is what is correct. So if you're not looking at information, on the basis to build your beliefs, but rather just the depth of your emotional feeling. 
about it or your personal convictions or moral convictions, it's not a long road before you start getting into almost fanatical application of those beliefs. In other words, you're not open to any challenge and the beliefs get stronger and stronger until they lead to violence. This guy, we're told, was acting on his own. Uh, and and so some of these other occurrences too, they seem to be acting on their own. But there there seems to be a movement here, and it, it is it the fact that so much of the stuff is available online right now? I mean, there are sites that you can go to that that can swiftly change people's ideas and and concepts, or or, or are they reading these web pages uh, to to validate what they've already felt? It's both. Uh, it validates what people already feel, and it contributes to that fanaticization of that set of beliefs that I was talking about a moment ago. I think one of the main things that came through the COVID-19 period is just the rise in susceptibility to conspiracy theories and the belief that there are all manner of cabals out there that are coordinating these terrible things against formerly advantaged segments of the population. So when we look at where hate crimes go, as you say, a great degree of a spike up against LGBTQ and sexual orientation, hate crime, also crimes directed against the Jewish communities and Asian communities. So this is where we, these are communities associated with conspiracy theories that they are powerful groups of people that are somehow pulling the global strings that are unraveling what people see as their preferred ways of life. Now, obviously, this is a lot of nonsense. There are no global cabals of either Jewish persons or LGBTQ or Asian persons that are dismantling Western civilization as a kind of cabal, but people are very susceptible to these messages, and they always do well, unfortunately, these types of conspiracy theories in times of pandemic. In situations like this, though, you know, even if that that mindset is there, sadly, uh, you look at some of the things that are going on in the world right now, and I know there's a, a big furor down south of the border uh, because of some of the Supreme Court decisions and some of the legislation that's passed. Uh, you know, Ron DeSantis seems to to have a thing with the LGBTQ community, and and is is you know he's that's channeling through the legislation that they're passing in Florida. Uh, the Supreme Court decision uh, yesterday uh, about affirmative action uh, is is now been tossed out. Uh, the the overturning of Roe versus Wade a year ago does does that feed into this where people that are, are of that mind that they hate you know LGBTQ or they they hate a certain gender or they hate a certain uh, you know ethnic group uh, when they see laws like that passing see that that validates it. I mean we I thought used to take pride in the fact that it, here in the twenty first century uh, we become more progressive, more accepting, but we seem to be taking a giant step backward right now. And that this kind of behavior seems to fester as a result. Oh, it absolutely goes in both directions. Where you have a public appetite for those types of regressive policies, uh, politicians will pursue that lowest common denominator and seek the votes where they can get them. Mm-hmm. And then as you see that legislation coming into pass and tearing down of Uh, programs that were put into place on the basis of evidence and all kinds of uh, statistics about what would further society. Yes, it absolutely validates the the groups that support those views. It gives them the impression that they're absolutely correct because that's the direction that legislation is moving. And then it's a cycle and it gets tighter and tighter and more and more retrograde. And and it's it's at the point right now where you know certainly the people in Waterloo, but I mean there've been other instances too, uh, where they're afraid to walk the streets. I mean you just don't know. I mean this is a classroom. You'd like to think at a university classroom, you're in a safe space, but this kind of sends a message that there may not be any safe spaces. And and you know even that's not the case. Uh, that's the perception right now, and and that becomes the reality for many people. It is, and it has to do with the erosion of norms. And the expansion of spaces in which conflict is is perceived to be allowed. So with the decline of scientific authority, just for example, I mean, the university was a space in which people who are learned in an area, I mean, professors who have gone through a specific topic for many years, are presenting information that comes from years and years of their research and going through the research of other scholars to present it to the class. And that authority was pretty much accepted in that this was a person communicating facts-based argument to students. Now, we've got to a point where that type of science is not as valued, and it's seen as legitimate in many ways 
uh, to forcefully, not just debate, but forcefully challenge and maybe even use protest tactics or even violence against people in those spaces. It all has to do with that decline in respect for the overall scientific method. Uh, well, and we saw that manifest itself in Ottawa, didn't we, with the uh, the protests that went on there? And I know you're in the process of of writing about that too. And you, you got to figure that that I know the the mob mentality plays into that. But I mean, uh, there are those people that that I guess look for like minded people, you know, to to substantiate their points of view, uh, and and they will gather and they will work together, and that really just emboldens all of them, doesn't it? It, it does. And they find one another that much more easily now on the internet and social media space. And they're able to coordinate that much more quickly and get themselves in number to places where they wish to make either a peaceful point and sometimes a violent point. In this case, in Waterloo, we had what seems to be a lone actor. Uh, what is more frightening is if lone actors are able to find one another on the internet uh, and then take their way you know, into classrooms and other spaces like hospitals like uh, primary and secondary schools where we're seeing these types of protests manifesting these days. These are unconventional spaces for protest. But if dangerous people find one another on the internet and show up in these spaces, uh, it could be very worrying indeed. Well, I know, and I'm, I'm not saying let's shut down the internet, but I mean, you know, this individual from Waterloo, uh, who apparently graduated from the university last year, uh, I mean, they, they, they could be dialoguing with somebody from Tallahassee, Florida. I mean, you just don't know, but you know, you you find a kindred spirit, and I guess, and that and that's how you develop that bond, and that's how you, I guess you strengthen your points of view. Absolutely, and there are um, people with bad intentions out there that are deliberately recruiting. Uh, people who are leaning that way with either violent or hate-based views and attempting to radicalize them in very much the same way uh, that militant terror groups did through the 1990s and 2000s and 2010s. It's just a domestic form of the same form of radicalization. Uh, it's very troubling, obviously. And, and you know, the good news out of this reporting is, is uh, although these three people were injured, uh, they, they are going to survive. They're going to be fine. Uh, but I, I, I'm thinking, Michael, as police continue their investigation about this individual, uh, and we start hearing about the, the background of this individual, and of course they're going to start looking at uh, you know what web pages he visited and, and you know who he's talking to on the internet. Uh, I got a feeling it's going to lean very heavily towards what you've just been talking about here too, uh, and that's something that has to be addressed. Uh, as always, great to get your expertise on this. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend, Michael. We'll talk again soon. You as well. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Yeah, and a quick plug, by the way, we'll talk about the, uh, the book that he's writing about what happened in Ottawa with the uh, protests on Parliament Hill about, uh, well, almost two years ago now. And uh, that's still ongoing and uh, still, I think, feeds into this mindset that we've talked about. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Headline today, uh, the general manager of the Toronto Raptors, Messiah Jury, has just been named to the Order of Canada, uh, which is quite an honor and I think very well deserved uh, in his power. But uh, that was yesterday. That's for his past efforts. So what's going to happen going forward? Because uh, there are some big challenges for the Raptors this year. And uh, joining us to talk about this is our good friend, Jordan Armady, who's the producer of the show, the Bill Kelly Show. Also a former sports reporter and uh, and video journalist as well, uh, and NBA expertise uh, is just teeming out of this guy. And I know this is a busy time of year, an exciting time of year uh, for the NBA in general, Jordan, because of, of the, what's coming up with free agency. But I think it's a pivotal year for the Raptors, isn't it? Yeah, Bill. I mean, uh, Masai Ujiri is going to need the country's uh, reverence to sort of navigate <laughs> through this, because if he doesn't nail this free agency, this team is going to be rebuilding and reshaped. I mean, you, you know, he doesn't want to do this, but I mean, they've got about just over $50 million worth of cap space and they've got two starters that they have to resign. Of course, the main one is Fred Van Vliet, the point guard. And, you know, they've got a real challenge here. They gave up a first and two second round picks to get Jakob Pertl, a guy they drafted eight years ago, then traded to the Spurs to get Kawhi Leonard. No one's going to argue, you know, he helped bring a title to Toronto, but, you know, you gave up a lot of draft equity. He's essentially a free agent. And then you also have Fred Van Vliet who, you know, he, he came up with this great phrase that everybody uses down sports. He bet on himself, undrafted free agent. He cashed in, but now he's a free agent. And, you know, the ball is in is is not in the Raptors' favor. The ball's in Fred Van Vliet's court, essentially, because this is not a rich 
point guard free agent class. You know, you got a team like Houston who, you know, is essentially a super raw team, no superstars, all young guys, and $60 million worth of cap space. You know, Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN Insider, is saying that they could offer him a two-year, $80 million deal, $40 million for a 29-year-old Fred Van Vliet, who would, you know, remember, Texas is no tax, so he's going to get all that money, and then re-enter free agency at 31, where he could, you know, take uh, advantage of the 10-year player uh, benefits that come with being in the league for a decade. So, you know, the Raptors really have to decide, are we going to pay Fred Van Vliet a three- or four-year contract in, you know, $120 million? He's probably, there's not a lot of point guards out there that are essentially going to get that kind of, he's not really competing. You know, you have Kyrie Irving, who Dallas traded for. I mean, they're going to probably re-sign him. Russell Westbrook's a little bit past his prime. Dame Lillard is not a free agent, but he's making a lot of noise. James Harden just opted into his deal with the Sixers, but he's asking for a trade apparently. So the ball is, Fred Van Vliet is, I'm not trying to speak in hyperbole here, but he's one of the, he is a top three free agent in this class and the Raptors might not have enough money to bring him back. And then what you have, you have Malachi Flynn, who they drafted three years ago, who stinks. You have uh Delano Banton, who they didn't even qualify an offer for a second round pick from two years ago. You got an undrafted free agent, Jeff down. Like they have no point guard in one of the most important positions in the league. And they have to resign two guys. Honestly, this is going to be interesting. I, I really, he's really going to make his money, him and Bobby Webster, over the next twenty four hours to see where this team's going. Bill, well, do they do they commit to this, or is Fred as good as gone? I mean, I guess that's one of the questions you ask here, uh, because this may be the only time he gets to tap into the gold mine, uh, as you say, at, at a young age. Uh, and there's not a whole lot going on out there, and. and I, Pirtle, on the other hand, though, as you mentioned, uh, that's kind of a homecoming for him. But he played well for the Raptors when he came here at the trade deadline last year. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's great. He's a, he's an excellent – he's a top-10 center in a league that doesn't have a lot of centers. You know, the Raptors are essentially like eight, six, eight guys who play all around the court, which we saw last year doesn't work. Uh, like I said, he gave up a lot of draft equity. He's good in the pick and roll. He's good defender, really good passer. And he's going to command about $20 million, right? So I think he will resign. You know, he's, he got drafted the same year as Pascal Siakam. They're good friends. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time because, you know, the Raptors, of course, uh, let go of Nick Nurse, now uh, Darko Ryakovich, new uh, former uh, Grizzlies assistant, now the head first-time head coach of the Raptors. You know, what these guys are going to have to decide, you know, we lost to the Chicago Bulls in a play-in, so they're essentially their ceiling. Now, is it their ceiling? That's another question we got to ask because many of these guys, according to journalists, are, uh, you know, didn't, you know, kind of Nick Nurse was sort of, they'd had it with him and maybe he had it with the team. So is this the real potential? You know, we don't know. Is the lure of playing with a, a what people are calling a player-friendly development-based coach, Darko Ryakovich, enough of an incentive to come back? You know, some people are writing, some journalists, top NBA journalists are saying that Jakob Pertl could go back to, to the Spurs, which would be a disaster for Toronto after giving up that asset. Essentially, they rented him for three quality draft assets for a couple months of play. I mean, and again, not a lot of centers out there either. You got Brooke Lopez from the Bucks, who's a free agent. He's in his 30s. I mean, he, I'm not sure he wants to go to Toronto. Like, this is so crucial, Bill. And I think, like, I don't know what the plan B is. And I don't think a lot, whether you're a casual fan or a Raptors diehard, I don't know what the plan is because he's Masai Jiri and Bobby Webster have built this team around the versatile, you know, wing forward. Everybody's six, nine. And, you know, they just have such big holes. And you saw this team last year and you're like, this team is not working, whether it's okay. We're going to find out it's not the coach, but who's going to stick around to play on a team. That's essentially a fringe playoff team, right? Like it's, it's really key. And to complicate matters, Gary Trent jr. Uh, opted into his deal, which took cap space away from the Raptors. Now mind you, Gary mm-hmm. Trent is young and who he was not great for essentially half a season. Didn't really do much, but he's got a lot of potential. And I think that put a, a through sort of a fork in the Raptors plans because I don't think that they thought he was going to come back. You know, you see the draft. We didn't talk about this, but they drafted Grady Dick out of uh, Kansas, who looks like he's going to be a player. I'm not sure he's going to be a superstar, but I mean, he can shoot, which is amazing. He's uh, got incredible TikTok presence, which is fantastic for North Americans who are dying to, or Canadians who are dying to be recognized by other American teams. So he's a fun guy. He probably fits the team culture, but now you essentially just drafted 
another wing, another guard who's essentially reserve. You still have holes at center and point guard. So exactly. I really, I mean, free agency starts at 6 PM today. Deals are going to start rolling in tomorrow. Like it's going to be interesting, Bill. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure Fred Van Vliet's not coming back. Well, I tell you what, we got to break up because uh, we're this producer. Of this program really gets on my case when I run late. So I'm. I'm yeah, uh, oh, that's you. Times, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's let's let, pro wrestling at First Ontario Center for the last two days. So let's, I apologize uh, let's to all the up. listeners who think that I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. I don't. Yeah. I just really like wrestling. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll do a part two to this after uh, the dust settles on some of the stuff next week. But thanks so much for this, Jordan. Good talking with you about this. All right. Happy Canada Day. Take care. You too. Uh, a little uh, throat lozenges, maybe some halls or something to get rid of that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's another one of those days. Uh, smoke uh, is is once a pack affecting. As I mentioned on the show the other day, uh, having lived all my life here in Southern Ontario, born and raised in Hamilton, I've never in, in all my years recall having smoke in the forecast. You know, heavy smoke, uh, fog. Yeah, sure. And, and, things of this nature but to have it to the extent that we have had it over the last couple of weeks especially is it's it's well it's mind-boggling and quite frankly uh, a little frightening our next guest can uh, shed some light on exactly what's going on uh, he is uh, kent moore who is a vice principal of research and a professor of atmospheric physics at the university of toronto professor pleasure to have you on the program thank you so much today thanks bill it's my pleasure uh, I won't. I won't ask you what, what's going on. I think we all know what's going on and why it's going on. Uh, but has it ever, in, in your experience, been as severe as it seems to be this year? No, I think this year is really uh, quite extreme. I mean, we've had uh, you know numerous instances in the last uh, month or so where you know cities in uh, eastern North America have had the poorest air quality in the world, and Toronto today has that dubious record as well. So it's uh, among major cities in the world. Toronto has the poorest air quality anywhere, and that's just because of these smoke and these wildfires up in northern Canada, northern Ontario, and northern Quebec. I mean, we've had bad air days in the past, and usually the the culprit those was industry. You know, we Hamilton, of course, all the stuff that was down there in the, in the, the old days, of steel mills, etc. But this is different. I was just I mentioned to our listeners the other day, Professor, was uh, going across the Skyway Bridge between uh, Hamilton and, and into Burlington. Uh, and usually when you're at the at the apex of that bridge there, this beautiful view of, of Hamilton on one side and, and Burlington's waterfront on the other, nothing. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see either. Uh, it was that thick. The smoke was that thick when you got up to the top of it there. Uh, I've never seen something like that happen, and, and it seems to be happening on a pretty regular basis this summer. Yes, we've had a really bad wildfire season. So this is, I think, the worst wildfire season in at least 20 or 30 years. I mean, so, uh, you know, in Canada, but... 80,000 square kilometers are on fire, and that's about the size of Lake Superior. So there's a lot of fires going on. And it's mostly because it's been a dry, hot summer, uh, spring, and now in, 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 into the summer. So, you know, uh, it is really, really bad. Uh, and uh, one of the things which, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I mean, we're used to urban air pollution. And so mm-hmm. mostly that's, uh, as you say, it's from industry. It's mostly uh, nitrogen dioxide and ground level ozone. Those are usually the things that we attribute with, with air pollution. And um, wildfires uh, are, are mostly soot and they have these very small part- particulates, less than 2.5 microns. And there is some of that in urban air pollution, you know, like, t- you know, when t- tires and are moving on the road, they tend to bring this little bit of uh, particulate. When you, when you burn, uh, you know, gas, you get a bit of this, but the wildfires pollution is quite a bit different. And that's one of the challenges is that our the way we measure urban air pollution is heavily weighted towards ozone and nitrogen dioxide, which are mostly industrial sources, and so we have to essentially change the way we measure uh, air, air air pollution because uh, wildfires uh, it's mostly this very fine particulate matter, which is really dangerous because it's so fine it can get deep into your lungs, uh, and it's hard for the lungs to to expel that uh, material, and so. It just inflames the lungs and that reduces lung function. So especially people who have compromised lung function, uh, you know, the this soot can be really, really dangerous to them. Well, and that's the concern, I guess. Uh, and we've heard those those warnings, you know, newscasts and et cetera, when we talk about uh, indexes and things of this nature. And I guess the, you know, the simplistic way of putting this, if you can see it and if you can smell it, you're breathing it. And, and that's got to be a concern. Well, well, well exactly. And, and the other challenge is, is that, uh, so typically, you know, if you think about a usual kind of uh, air air pollution event, let's say in a big city in in the summer, 
uh, it usually builds up over a couple of days and it's a very, very stable environment. One of the problems is you get these what are called inversions and they keep all the pollutants down near the surface and they kind of build up over a few days until some wind event blows them away. The, the problem with the soot from these wildfires is that it's being transported by, by winds from very long distances. And so over a short period of time, you know, the winds can change direction. They can bring the soot in or they can blow it out. And, and so that's the other challenge is that we, we, we sort of ex- expect, you know, if it's going to be a bad air quality day, it's kind of going to build up over a few days and we kind of can prepare for it. But some of these uh, wildfire events where the winds can change direction really quite rapidly, uh, it, it could blow in and it could blow out. And that's, I think, the, the challenge when we try to warn, you know, the public is that it's it, it, it can change almost on an hourly basis. And that's, I think, one of the other things. Yes, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, I noticed it was really, really bad in the morning, and then suddenly it kind of got clear in the afternoon. And that doesn't normally happen when you have these typical air pollution events where they tend to build over a couple of days. And so that's that's the other challenge is that, uh, you know, uh, people may look outside and not see anything and say, well, what are they talking about, right? And then it suddenly blows in. And so, so again, I think that the public has to understand that these are very dynamic events, and uh, it's a challenge to forecast them. And even if they say the, the air quality may be bad, it, it may not be bad all the time. It could get good for a couple of hours and, and then go bad again. How do, how do these particles that you were just talking about, how do they behave or interact? I mean, we always just think of a mass uh, and think, okay, fine, you know, I can smell. It smells like a, a you know campfire. Uh, but yeah. when we hear the stories about what's happening here in Ontario, uh, impacting across the ocean, impacting all the way down to, to Florida, uh, places like that, you, you you would think, oh, this stuff will dissipate by the time it gets, you know, the wind blows down there. It doesn't seem to. It looks like it's a great big chunk of smoke. I mean, not a very scientific expression, I know, but it just seems to stay together and, and just travel in one big hunk like that and not a well, continuous one either. That's a good, a chunk of smoke is a good way a to describe it. A chunk of smoke, though. yeah. Because these, these these particles are so small. They're so small that, that normally, uh, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, larger, uh, you know, particulate matter, it tends to follow under under gravity. So it tends just to fall out of the sky. But PM 2.5, these particles are, are are so small that they can remain suspended for long periods of time. And that's why you can see these events. You know, you can see, uh, you know, uh, Europe having poor air quality because of the wildfires in in Canada. So so these these particulate matter can travel very, very long distances. The only eventually they'll settle out, they mostly settle out when it when it rains. And again, the rain just kind of just kind of flushes all that stuff out, out, out of the sky. But absent sort of rain events, uh, they can travel long distances. And that's, I think, one of the real, the other challenges is that they're, these are really long range transport. And, you know, we, we do, I mean, there are cases where, you know, you can have a pollution event, let's say in Pittsburgh, and the, some of that bad air can get up to us. That that happens rarely. It has happened in the past. But these wildfires are, are, are sort of, by, by definition, very transient and also transport the, the uh, particulate matter very, very long distances. So they're a challenge almost globally. I mean, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's it, 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 again, we, this is part of adapt, adaptation, you know, uh, the, the amount of uh, area that, that's burned every year is increasing, most because temperatures are increasing, especially in the north, where they're increasing more rapidly. And and so, again, we just have to sort of uh, adapt to a new normal, which has poor air quality, not because of, you know, local industry, which is in the, the traditional source, right? But now it's essentially wildfires burning. And it doesn't have to be in Canada. Uh, you know, uh, two years ago, there were extreme wildfires in uh, northern Russia, and that particulate matter was transported at very, very long distances as, as well. So it, it really is almost like a hemispheric thing. And uh, we have to just adapt and understand that, uh, you know, our definition of air quality has to change. How how does science adapt to something like this? I, I don't know if this is necessarily the new normal, but it's happening with more frequency. Uh, is, is the technology advancing to try to, to, to be able to measure uh, what's going on and, 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 and to deal with it? I think we have a good. I think we have a good measure of a sort of the uh, the raw pollutants that are going into it. What has to change, for instance, is the way we measure these indices. So again, traditionally, this air quality index has been sort of based mostly on 
you know, uh, ozone and nitrogen dioxide, and also kind of averaged over longer periods of, of, of time. And so Environment Canada has introduced a new air quality index, which is uh, mostly based on uh, particulate matter and also averaging over a shorter period of time. So so we have the data, it's just how we sort of uh, characterize it. And I think that's the, the, the change. Again, 20 years ago, the focus really was on, you know, urban sources of pollution. So how do we in, improve air quality in a big city while well, you clean up industry, right? You make sure the buses are, you know, running on, uh, not on diesel, but on, you know, kind of cleaner fuels. And so we have to understand now that the way we clean up air quality in in in, in cities may force us to change the way we manage forests far, far away. And that's a very different kind of paradigm. So I think science has the basic, I mean, we measure all these things. So just how do we sort of, if, if you like, you know, kind of um, characterize the sources and the impacts? And that's what's actually changing. Uh, and the index itself. I mean, we've seen, you know, yes. the warnings uh, from Montreal, Toronto. Toronto's a bad day. Uh, you know, fours, fives, sevens, and things of like that. What, 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 uh, what does that number represent? Well, well, again, so, you know, the, the challenge is, is that, uh, you know, you know, again, urban air quality is a function of a bunch of different pollutants. And so what we do is try to produce these indices, which are an easily un- interpretable way of, of, of understanding. So it's a 10 point scale. And obviously, the higher you go up on the scale, the more polluted the air is. And, and so so they characterize, a, you know, there's a characterization for each of the numbers along that scale. And that mm-hmm. scale is produced by essentially uh, mixing in these various types of pollutants, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and uh, PM 2.5. And again, traditionally, when we produce this air quality index, we've weighted most heavily ozone and uh, nitrogen dioxide because those are the main sources of uh, urban pollution. And so, uh, and this is the challenge is that uh, the, the current air quality index may say it's a five, which is not a bad day. But because it's not weighting the PM 2.5 properly, it could actually be a quite a dangerous day. And that's, I think, one of the things, again, some provinces have changed the way they do that. BC is, has now has these two air quality indices, one which is more focused on urban pollution, the other one which is more focused on wildfire. Uh, Ontario hasn't done that yet. I, I expect they will do that over the next you know, few, few months. And so we just have to, again, sort of educate the population you know when there's two numbers it's more of a challenge than when there's one number right honestly i mean that's sort of the basic challenge here and so i I think we just have to sort of do a better job of educating the public as to what these numbers mean and what they and what they don't necessarily mean right so a five you know on the current index may say it's okay for you to go outside uh, but because it's not weighting the particulate matter properly, it could be dangerous to people who have, uh, you know, have uh, compromised lung function. And, and, and so it's just like, I think just educating people, hopefully this little segment will help do that, just educating people to what the new normal is. And again, uh, air, urban air pollution wasn't what it was 20 years ago. And that's, we have to change the way we, we think of it, the way we measure it, and the way we, we uh, communicate that to the public. Who's worst? Uh, who's going to be impacted by the most by something like this? Uh, we keep calling, you know, if you if you have compromising situations, you know, lung disease or any number of things like that, or elderly people, things just by age alone. Are we moving toward a point where we just, you know, if that indice gets up to, uh, I think it's seven point five in Montreal today, but if it gets up around eight, nine, nine something like that, are we going to be at the point where they're just saying, going to say, don't go outdoors today? I, th- I think so. I mean, that's essentially what the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I was in Montreal today, or even Toronto today, and, and I had, you know, compromised lung function, because of course, is what what the PM two point five does is it just inflames the lungs, right? So mm-hmm. if you're already having difficulty, you know, breathing, then that extra load of particulate matter will just, if you like, put more stress, and 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 that stress can lead to reduced lung function, it can lead to heart attacks, things like that. So so it it. Uh, and and the, the good thing is that right now we have a we have a way to deal with that. Just stay inside, right? Yeah. And, and don't exercise. You know, don't don't go out walking. Uh, and I think so. There are there are adaptation strategies which will manage that. Of, of course, if we get to a chronic situation where you know, and I don't think we'll actually get there. Um, you know, where essentially the air quality is bad every day, then I think we have to think of other things to do. But right now, you know, for it, it may be inconvenient for people to stay inside. But I think that's just for their safety and for their health. It's the best thing to do right now. 
uh, I, I don't want to stray too far from uh, atmospheric physics into the, into medicine, but because uh, I've seen some of the clips on TV, you know, talking to people in the park, and oh god, I, I you know, no pain, no gain. I, I'm still going to do my 10k today, whatever. Uh, and and as you mentioned, there can be some damage, even if you're young and athletic, etc. The damage in this, your lungs. This stuff builds over, over over time, so the particulate matter can get into your lungs, and even if you're health, even if you're young and healthy. You know, it's it's a challenge for the lungs to remove that matter. And mm-hmm. so it, it it may sit there. And so it may not, you know, it's like smoking. It doesn't kill you, you know, in the first 10 years you do it. it you know, the impacts are, are uh, way down the road. So you may feel you're fine today. But in 20 or 30 years, you know, that that sort of extra load of, of inflammation on your lungs may lead to del- deleterious health effects. So I think you have to think long term. And really just be prudent because, again, you know, uh, we only have so many lungs and uh, these these loads tend to build over time. And especially on during a summer like this, uh, you know, I think it's just better to exercise. Just go to the waiting room right, or go to the gym. Don't go out and do yeah. your 10K in, in the park because you may feel fine. But again, it's just going to build over over time. And you'll you don't even, you know, 20 years from now, you want to if you have some lung disease, you may not even uh attribute to that exercising you did 20 years ago, but that would have contributed to it. So I think it's just really be uh, con- be con- conservative. We know these effects are here. The good thing is they're transient. So right now, you know, we have, you know, we have some poor air quality days, but they're mostly good air quality days. And so we just have to sort of just, just stay uh, really healthy by staying indoors when the air quality is really bad. Well, good advice. Uh, great to get your perspective and your expertise on this. I know a lot of people have questions about this, about what can I do, what can I do, and when is this going to end? Uh, and you're right, it kind of just swarms out of the side. This was supposed to be, I remember the prediction on Wednesday, this was supposed to be a nice clean air day, and, and you yeah. see what happens. So uh, we just have to uh, pivot, I guess, when it does. Professor, yeah, thank these you so things, much These things this. are really transient. And just, yeah, pivot, I think it's, uh, it's a really good word, Paul. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm staying indoors myself, and I hope you are too. Thanks again, Professor. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Any anytime. That's uh, Professor uh, Kent Moore from the University of Toronto talking about what's going on in the sky up here and the impact it's having. And it's it's kind of weird, isn't it? You know that, like I say, you, you, you know it's, it's like a campground. You know, then 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 morning after, you know, everybody had a campfire the night before, and you can just smell the the burning wood or the burnt wood, I guess it is, and and that's what's hanging over us right now. It's uh, it's really weird, very situation. Uh, but we're living it and we have to live with it and be careful of what, what we're doing too. So take it easy out there. As uh, the good professor says, the bill Kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to the bill Kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.